Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm gonna be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This has got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right, don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. Chelsea, keeping you up to date on the latest news from Stamford Bridge. Match recaps, previews, presented by WorldSoccerShop.com. It's the London is Blue podcast. Here's your hosts, Brandon, Dan, and Nick. Surprise! I bet you didn't see an international break podcast coming, did you, listeners? Well, guess what? We haven't been able to talk about any high-level topics related to the club, so we're going to go ahead, pay a little bit over time, bring in Dan and Nick. So guys, keep it tight to the time limits. You know we're not made of money. Um, I have never been paid. Is this <laughs> is this a is, is payment a new thing for you, Dan, or have you been paid all along? I, I mean, I, I get a check from Brandon, so I, I don't know what your situation is. Huh. Huh. Okay. Might Noted. need to get your new address, Nick. It could be as simple as that. Yep. For three years worth of checks. So. <laughs> Just watch out for that back pay. It'll be nice. <laughs> Um, Well, if you follow us on social media, you'll already know that we've got the legend known as Joe Tweeds back on the pod to dig deep on some of these things that we're going to get ready to talk about. So welcome back, Joe. As we mentioned before the pod, it's been far too long, but we're really excited to uh, have this special episode with you. 
Yeah, uh, great to be back on, guys. And I think obviously the international break, probably a good time to, to delve into some of the topics that have, have started to rear their heads over the past couple of weeks. So yeah, no, definitely uh, looking forward to having a chat with you guys. Awesome. Well, before we get into that really, really quick, we do have a few more iTunes reviews. So as always, f- shout outs for the five stars, Dan. Yeah, yeah, shout outs for some five stars. Uh, PBOT182, Tenny Kittikus, and then uh, we we had an almost five star that suggested maybe we need to amp it up with a little bit more um, Red Bull or coffee. Um, uh, Two two Bear uh, Four. So, I mean, we'll we'll give him credit for the four star, Nick. You know, just maybe sometimes we uh, we don't, don't get the coffee before we go on the pod. This is true. We We record at night a lot, so slamming four red bulls before we go to sleep is probably not the best solution but uh, but we'll work on but that but two but two just maybe just not the a bad two. idea <laughs> just the two then Right. Well, thankfully, we also had some more Patreon names. Uh, If you didn't hear from us this time, don't worry. We're saving you for our special live pod in London. But Jacob W. had this to say with his $5 donation. I'll take my postcard from Nick as a fellow bearded man. Also, because I fear anything coming from Florida is contaminated by dot, 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 (laughs) everything that is Florida, dot, 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 (laughs) Dan. That's but, fair. Just look at our governor, one of our senators. <laughs> he then goes on and says, no preference on the shout out. However, I have enjoyed Dan's recent uptick in saying the word fuck. So if you want to incorporate that in there, then cool. So Dan, the floor is yours. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I'm supposed to say something, but I, I feel like I'm just going to, in that moment, withhold it and bring it out later in the episode. Awesome. Love I'm it. I'm going to save it. I'm, you know, I'm going to pack it up. When you least expect it. All right. Well, thank you, Jacob, for that donation, as always. Uh, then last one on the boards, Nick, is to our presenting sponsors, World Soccer Shop. Correct. Just a, a quick shout out to go follow them on social media. I know we've said this in the past, but it's really helpful if uh, if you go on and follow them on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Maybe leave a comment saying that you uh, you got there through our show. Always helpful. Um, do that uh, at World Soccer Shop launching all of the national kits for the World Cup, as well as a lot of free shipping deals. So it's uh, it's a good time to be browsing around on there. All right, so today we're gonna do a little bit of a mix. We're gonna be doing uh, a dive into these bigger topics with tweeds, but we're also gonna be mixing in some questions that we've received from you, our listeners, on our website. So for those people who ask questions or featured today, they will be getting a Chelsea pitch owner share uh, as a reward for that. Uh, we use Yappa to be able to take in your audio questions, and they were kind enough to sponsor some CPO shares to give away as a little contest so um again if you want to leave an audio question just head to our website london is forward slash questions you can click the little widget sign up with facebook and leave your question we'll download it and we'll play it live on the podcast just like you'll hear uh, hopefully we'll be doing some more things like this um but don't be surprised if you hear some other people talking during the episode Anyways, I think that's enough about how we're going to do this. Let's go ahead and jump into part one, uh, discussing the summer strategy, starting with a director of football. Um, Joe, you had uh, done some work and written some things on this, and and I guess director of football might not be the best term. Is that what you're saying at Chelsea? Yeah, um, I think the... The, the sort of connotations that it has, particularly around, you know, sort of Michael Emanalo and 
you know, whether you are positive about his time at Chelsea or, or, or otherwise, I think it's just generally, yeah, the, the sort of the, the role itself. I think that the technical director, director of football role that he is, he has sort of occupied is, is maybe something which I think some fans uh, are slightly kind of reticent to accept. So, yeah, I mean, my, I would, I would ideally say, you know, that we should be p- pursuing something which a little bit more European, more of a sporting director, and there are some sort of slight nuances in terms of that, whereby a uh, yeah, director of football may probably focus entirely on recruitment and, and sort of the footballing side of things whereas a sporting director will will obviously look at the recruitment side of things but also look at the the medical side of things the sports science department sort of the whole entire sporting side of the club and yeah I mean I imagine you would have for example a sporting director you probably have this uh, this new CEO Guy Lawrence on the other side on sort of looking after the commercials and probably both of them report directly to, to Marina so you have that kind of bridging link between the commercial and the football side of thing, but yeah, I think the 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 name itself, director of football, is 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 fine. Um, but I would imagine potentially that, that having a sporting director, slightly more all encompassing, and you know you don't necessarily have that um, sort of almost a, a kind of a, a to and froing with a with a manager who is in charge of the football, and then you have a director of football. It's it's kind of a yeah, the sort of the, the verbiage around it is, is slightly confusing in some cases, particularly um, in, in English football. It's it's kind of an accepted concept on on the continent. A lot of European teams have a director of football because that is the, the way a lot of these clubs are run. Whereas I think in the uh, particularly in England, that sort of uh, yeah, there, there is kind of some sort of uh, conflict between a, a manager who is there to look after football and then a director who obviously director of football makes it seem like he is sort of slightly above the the manager on the footballing side of things so yeah that, that really was just a for me something that I think the club should look to to change is just really the role um, I think technical director is to us too wedded to Michael Emanalo and, and as I said rightly or wrongly he has a certain reputation um, director of football maybe has a uh, slightly uh, higher um, sense in, in the hierarchy than a manager so I would look at something like a sporting director which I think is, is all encompassing on the sporting side of things but you're not saying, uh, you know, kind of with with any sort of real authority that he has that kind of uh, sort of power over the manager. So, yeah, that, that, that was really sort of the thinking behind that. I mean, that makes sense. Obviously, it's a bit of a checkered past in that sense and, and not really having defined roles, maybe necessarily at the top, um, you know, as far as the yeah, fans exactly, are concerned. Yeah. yeah. So there's always been that kind of level of uncertainty. But anyways, Nick, uh, Tweeds did throw out some suggested names. Um, do you want to at least run through the list and we can pick out a few that he wants to talk about? Yeah. And really quickly before I do that, I think it might be helpful, Joe, for you to kind of maybe compare a Chelsea structure uh, in terms of like the front office structure with, you know, another club that you that you value highly in in terms of their organization, just to like show the comparisons because Chelsea kind of have an abnormal setup, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I think probably the the, the three best run clubs and maybe you would include a fourth as, as Manchester City now, but kind of reading up on this and doing a lot of research, you have... Ajax, who who are just you know incredible at this sort of structure, um, they have a um, something they call the technical heart of the club, which is often a lot of ex-players involved, whether that's coaching, whether that is on the director side, the more technical side of the club, which is something I really like. Bayern Munich, kind of a hybrid of Ajax and Barcelona, where they have again earmarked Philip Lahm as sort of a role as kind of the director of football side of things. They have, I think, two or three ex-players sort of running the club and they have Bayern Munich people embedded on the administrative side, on the technical side of the club, as well as the commercial side. So again, you know, obviously they 
they do benefit from being rather dominant in terms of German football but I think the, the kind of emphasis still on there is that their, their structure the way that they have uh, decided to run the club you know hiring kind of the, the more capable and the, perhaps the more intelligent ex-players into the system has been a huge benefit to them rather than a hindrance and then yeah you I mean you, you look at Barcelona who are, are probably you know probably one of the more famous people in terms of, of, of their structure um, a lot of ex-players going to the club in some capacity whether it's coaching whether it's to do with the, the board level um, and yeah and it's it's no real surprise that, that City actually pinched um, can never say they gave their guys name, uh, name right Tixie Bergeson uh, to go and, and, and head up the similar role at Manchester City to create that kind of culture um, Bergeson was, was someone who I was slightly unfamiliar with but if you actually look at his career I mean he's a he's a multiple league winner multiple like European trophy winner at Barcelona he is the kind of person that you would think, yeah, knows the club inside out, knows sort of the club's philosophies, knows and, and understands the club, and no real um, surprise that they enjoyed a lot of success with him in that sort of that that kind of technical role at the club. So, yeah, I mean, I think my my favourite, I think, is is it's kind of the Bayern Munich model where you have. Um, sort of the best bits of the Ajax model and perhaps the the kind of the heart of the Barcelona model in terms of the the way the club's being run but I mean sadly that that sort of model is being replicated extremely well by Manchester City at the moment and you know it's uh it's all well and good. I mean, looking at what Guardiola has done on the football side of things there, but in terms of kind of the the off the field stuff, if Guardiola was to retire at the end of the season, they have a kind of set direction. They have a set way of playing. They have a set kind of type of player that they're, that they're looking to bring in. I think you could very easily drag and drop um, different managers and different coaches into that setup and enjoy very similar success. So City very close to home would be someone that you would look at and think, yeah, that they're doing things the right way. But I think Bayern Munich probably the epitome of, or maybe potentially the best run club in, in Europe in terms of the entire model, bringing in ex-players, bringing in ex-buying people to to keep the, as, as Ajax put it, the technical heart of the club kind of true to the footballing side of things, but also to, to ensure obviously that the commercial side of things is a benefit to the football and it's not just there to, to generate money everything has to be about footballing excellence and the pursuit of excellence on the pitch which is I think Bayern's kind of mantra um, it doesn't matter what they're buying what they're doing on the commercial side of things if it has no benefit to the, the footballing side of the pitch they don't, they don't really care about it so yeah Bayern probably I think would be the probably be the, the, the best case in terms of trying to replicate a structure and I think in most cases you know a lot of US sports have got a very very good setup in terms of general managers and, and scouting and recruitment departments and obviously the coaching staff and that sort of triangle of, of, of people works very well um, I think you know we think in, in many respects Chelsea could uh, could learn from looking at a, a similar structure having a, a kind of a figurehead a general manager type person maybe Marina Granovskaya for example um, and then you have kind of more of your technical side of things your kind of recruitment your sort of scouting department your kind of football people area and then the commercial side of things as well so yeah I mean I think it's, a, it's an exciting proposition I think you know from from the reports you've seen in the paper particularly uh, linking the club to Luis Campos that the club seemed to at least be entertaining the prospect of going down this sort of route um, so yeah I mean I think it's, it's something that potentially I think a lot of people are going to become familiar with over the next couple of months is this this extended role of a sporting director or, or a you know, a director of football and, and how they link into the, the potential, you know, not just the short-term success of the club, but giving us the ability to have long-term sustainable success. Right. And, th and that was something that as I was listening to the Chelsea fan cast a, a couple of weeks back um, that Mark Worrell brought up um, yeah. uh, in, a, in a, an incredibly funny way where he's, you know, the, 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 the football side needs to be there, right? The football yeah, knowledge exactly, yeah. needs to be there because without that, it's just, you know, it seems as if, 
you know, I'm trying, I'm not, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but it, to me, it seems like you have a lot of really savvy business people. Uh, and, and you and Jake Cohen have, have gone back and forth on this on our show before really savvy business people, uh, running what is inherently a football organization, right? So there does have to be that knowledge base there that makes everything kind of come together. Um, how would you just really quickly, how would you compare Chelsea's structure to, to, you know, the Bayern Munich structure, you know, in terms of like key differences, maybe that would help everyone kind of set the table for what we're going to talk through. Yeah, sure. Um, I think the, the the main difference that we have is that I would say Chelsea's, at least from a, a kind of director level, the emphasis has been at least, I would say, like the, the kind of outward obvious difference has been that we have been very focused on the commercial side of things, maybe for the past sort of maybe three to four years. I think that's reflected in the ability to go out and get these kind of record deals from Nike and, and obviously the Carabao deal is, is very important, you know, looking at sort of the new stadium. So so that side of the business, I think, has been very, very different. Whereas I think at Bayern Munich, the focus is always, always on the footballing side of things. And, you know, whether you, if you had, for example, the same level of, let's say that the same level of, of acumen on both sides, whether we would be going out and buying players like Danny Drinkwater, to me, doesn't suggest that there is that level of footballing knowledge or or footballing uh, prioritisation on, 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 on kind of a director level. Now, at Bayern, at Ajax, at Barcelona, etc., said everything is about the footballing side of things. The commercial side is seen as a as an offshoot of, of footballing success. It's not seen as a, a thing that, that's kind of separate. And I think that, that potentially is the difference that we've had is that we've, we've focused a lot on, on generating money and whether it's by player trading or by, by this sort of these uh, sponsorship deals that we've accrued over the past couple of seasons but the, the main difference has been I think you know and I think that this is this is maybe becoming a more objective point now is that the quality in the squad has kind of diluted sort of almost season on season from maybe 2013 you know, you can look at lead titles etc and I think in some cases that does confuse uh, the sort of conversation because I don't think last season, you know, the quality of the squad is, is that much different to this one. And yet, by the virtue of us having like a normal season for Chelsea, i.e. we have more than one game a week. You know, I think you've, you've kind of seen the, the, the really sort of the, the really kind of the true metal, the true composition of the squad and that we're maybe not as competitive as what, as what people at the club thought we were. And the fact that we've, we've kind of got into that position, I think primarily through not necessarily making the best decisions on terms of players who were signing. Um, you know, a lot of uh, this, this stuff about losing Lukaku and Salah and De Bruyne you know, comes from giving Mourinho the ability to, to, to tell the club, yeah, I don't want these players, I'm, I'm happy to sell them. So, you know, we've, we've kind have afforded maybe managers too much control in that respect and and, and, and I'm not going to say sold the future of the club but we have sold three significant players for teams who are currently you know doing a lot better than us this season in terms of in terms of the league at least so yeah you know I think yeah, to sort of to summarise it's it's the it's the focus on the football which I think is what we're missing and I think the the lack of a, a vocal and a, a very driven director of football I think that's that's the real complaint about Emanalo is that I do feel that the way he ended up going into this sort of very prominent position, he was he was almost quite thankful for being there rather than feeling like he could he could object maybe to some of the the stuff that was happening elsewhere in the club. And I think yeah, you know that we've we've kind of missed this sort of very vocal, very knowledgeable, very vociferous um, personality almost on the footballing side of things. Who says you know buying these players isn't good? We should maybe focus on doing this or this. And uh, yeah, it's 
for me, I, I just feel that there's there's been a bit of a disparity between what should be the priority of the club, the football side of things, and what has been the priority, which seems to have been generating as much money as possible. And you know, there will come a point where that 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 kind of tipping, um, that sort of tipping scale will will fall. We, we won't be able to go out and get these deals if we're not a competitive football team. So you know, I think that this this summer and potentially the reorganisation of of the footballing side of things should be the priority. And I think that that's that's the thing that we really need to to take away from the Bayern Munichs and the Barcelonas and and you know Ajax and City etc. These these clubs that have this real kind of identity that they seem to be be forging is something that we ne- we definitely need to grasp. And yeah, the attention needs to, to needs to switch from commercial excellence to football excellence. So you mentioned Campos, and, and for those who don't know, is currently at uh, Lille, but also it previously had been at Real Madrid at the same time with Mourinho. And you know, what, what would you say, You know, because there are also some names that you kind of put down from a Chelsea perspective yes, that kind of yeah. tie back to that Byron model of bringing back you know, former players or kind of recognizable faces, but what would Campos bring specifically to, to Chelsea if he were to be in that sporting director role for us? Um, I mean, I think the, the 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 prime thing is I think he has shown an ability, particularly at Monaco. I mean, I think a lot of people remember that Monaco were potentially sort of emerging as a potential PSG-style team that they had a lot of significant investment from a, a very rich owner and they went out and bought Falcao and Moutinho and went out and got a lot of very, very high-end players very quickly. But due to some personal reasons, I think they only got divorced and lost a lot of money that, you know, they had to kind of rethink the way they were doing things. And, and what Campos was able to do was actually, with, with a very, very small budget, was to be able to go out and, and find players like Mbappe and, and OK, Bakayoko hasn't been too great here. But, you know, Bakayoko, when he was at Monaco, was a fairly decent player. Fabinho, you know, the Sidibe, a lot of these players that they've that they kind of brought through in, in sort of a, a two, three year window were all kind of players that Campos Campos spotted, and I think that that kind of rebuilding phase, particularly with with younger players with lesser known talents, is potentially something that that Chelsea were very good at a couple of years ago. I mean, you know, we bought Kevin De Bruyne for seven million pounds, Courtois for a similar fee. You know, we were we were very good at spotting these sort of elite talents at a young age, and yeah, I think that that's that's really kind of what he brings in is this ability to to be a world-class, uh, you know, world-class talent spotter. It, it doesn't hurt that he knows the French market particularly well. Um, anyone who's seen their kind of strength in depth for the World Cup, you know, if, even if you're getting someone who maybe makes their third choice team, you're probably still getting an incredibly good player. And the fact that he knows that market very, very well is, I think, a huge positive as well. Um, and I think also the, the, the thing that, that I would say he would be able to promote, at least internally at Chelsea, is that he has the ability to to look at what you have already in-house and to analyse those players. So I'm talking about sort of academy players, I'm talking about players out on loan. He's able to look at those and actually see, you know, in terms of a strategy for the club, okay, so if you want to play a particular formation, if you want to play a particular style of football, he's very good at, at looking internally and, and figuring out, okay, which of these, I don't know, 20 or so players have got a realistic chance of, of being part of the first team this season. And, and his ability to make those decisions, I think, is... Is, uh, is probably what separates him from most. I think he, it hasn't gone as well for him at Lille this season. Um, I think that I read something that there was some conflict with the manager there and I think the manager is a very big personality so maybe that hasn't necessarily worked out how we would have liked but I think previously particularly at Monaco you know, what, what we're seeing is a guy who has the ability to to build a project um, that, that's very much aligned with a, a strategy. So if, if, you know, him and the club come up with some kind of way forward, whether it's, you know, we want to play attacking football, we want to press, we want to play maybe 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1 formation. These are the kind of characteristics that we're looking for in players. 
he can go out and do that. And the main thing he brings, he brings this sort of scouting software, which is this sort of analytic stuff that he he kind of brings six guys with him. He brings sort of the software and their their ability to go and find players who are quite often unheralded is is pretty second to none in terms of the modern market. I mean, everyone knows everyone. You know, you you have YouTube compilations of fifteen year olds playing in Slovakia now. So I mean, it's not a a, a huge stretch to say that you know it's 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 easier for people to spot talent. But he he still, still seemingly gets it um, right more than often. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, if you look at that Monaco team, if they didn't have to sell Mbappe, they didn't have to sell Mendy, Lamar, you know, Lamar still there, Bakayoko, Bernardo Silva, Anthony Martial, you know, they would have a pretty decent team. So I think, you know, at Chelsea, there is that expectation that if he is finding this kind of level of players from elsewhere, that they're not having to, um, you know, not having to sell on. And I think he's very much about coming and trying to build something which is going to be long term and not necessarily building it to to sell players on. So, yeah, you know, I, I like the idea. I like the fact that, that we're linked with him. I think he has a very definitive uh, methodology, which I think would work. Um, it would be, for me, about establishing the relationship between, you know, him coming in and whoever the potential new manager may be in the summer but um, yeah you know, I think he's he's one of probably a, a handful of, of kind of world class candidates that you could potentially bring in who have the CV who have the experience and, and probably have the drive and, and, and the, the kind of desire to sort of re-establish Chelsea you know you're almost coming to the club um, in the summer I think with, with something relatively of a, of a blank slate I think the club are sort of admitting that you know, going forward that they want to have this kind of different change of style and be less short term and, and less reliant on kind of short term manager bounces. So in some cases, this is sort of the start of, of, of what I've, I've written in articles as Chelsea sort of 2.0, you know, kind of the second generation under Abramovich. And, you know, for, for someone of, of Campos's ability and, and mentality and the way that he looks at football, I think it's a really exciting opportunity for him, particularly if you were to bring in a manager who you know, kind of suits the style of football that Campos's footballers tend to be very good at, you know, a lot of playing with a lot of play, a lot of pace very technical um, you know obviously very very offensive fullbacks he has an ability just to spot talent so I think in that respect yeah he'd uh, he'd be a very very interesting acquisition if the club can uh, can seal that so I think that oh, then on the kind of the flip side though you know you, you also penned a really awesome piece which for those who haven't had a chance to see it yet was on uh, football.london where you went over the Chelsea kind of blueprint DNA type of you yes. know, option and there were a couple different thoughts there and ones that you kind of quickly ruled out like a, like a Frank Lampard potentially not being a great idea or a Didier Drogba um, which you know de- definitely are names that have kind of floated around but I think it makes sense from the thought that you know Lampard looks to be on a managerial track Drogba yes, yeah. has, is just a, a big kind of figure and you're kind of potentially pigeonholing him into a role that maybe is just uh, not as broad as his kind of global ambition yeah definitely I mean I think Lampard is an interesting one because I think from a from an actual kind of football philosophy standpoint he would almost be ideal the problem that you have with Lampard is that I think he's he's made no real sort of uh, you know he hasn't really hidden his desire to become a manager and I think in terms of uh, qualifications I think he has actually now or he will be at least by the time we kick off next season at least have the, the required sort of coaching badges to, to actually be Chelsea manager and whether you would you would store someone in such an influential position who has such a a kind of close relationship to the ownership group who has this ambition to be manager um yeah, I mean, that for me would be almost like uh, hanging the, the kind of proverbial axe over the top of the manager's head to begin with as soon as a, a series of results don't necessarily go in the right way or, 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 you know, the club isn't necessarily progressing in the right manner. You can see, I wouldn't necessarily say that Lampard would be the one sort of whispering in the in the ownership's uh, 
ear but uh, you know it's a, it's a very tempting move to then sort of replace someone with with a with a club legend who has the, the required club uh, qualifications and you know to, to sort of Drogba again I think he would be a, a fantastic sort of figurehead appointment um, but the amount of projects that he has going on at the moment I just think it's uh, you know I think he, he owns a football club now in America he has all this various stuff going on back in the Ivy Coast and you know whether he would have time for, for something which probably is, is going to be a very much a full-time role um, is, is, is a different question so I mean I can see Lampard coming back as a coach definitely um, whether that's straight in with the first team or um, potentially under 16s or under 18s level I'm not too sure and I think Drogba it makes sense definitely to give him some sort of ambassadorial role um, you know I think he's a he's a great uh, figure to have at the club in terms of, of as I said that sort of amb- kind of as an ambassador whether it's going to like Champions League meetings or whatever or just generally just being being Drogba for the club he's he's great in terms of branding and just generally what he stands for as a person so from that respect yeah but but yeah I, I can see them both be interesting for different reasons but, but also unlikely for, for the reasons I've stated. But thankfully for those fans still holding on for a former player filling this role, you did have Juliano Bellietti and Michael Ballack, which yes. not to go ahead and open myself up for, you know, hatred, but, you know, Juliano Belletti, he was, you know, around the time where a lot of American fans were coming to the game and probably don't really remember a lot about him. So I think it's interesting that he has the Barcelona connection, um, which obviously we've already talked about their model. And then obviously Ballack, if you're a Chelsea fan, you know about Michael Ballack, especially yes. if you're a Swedish referee or Norwegian, <laughs> where he's from. Norwegian, right? So, Norwegian? I mean, Belletti, Belletti is interesting because I think if you were going to appoint a, an ex-player, I mean, I, I had this conversation with a few people that they couldn't be in sort of like the god tier. So like your Lampards, your Drogba's, your Terry's, maybe your Zolikas, because the, the, the kind of the, the connection is too raw with the fan base. It would maybe have to be cult hero, which was like a Giuliano Belletti, or just someone who was a, a very, very elite player at the club. So someone like Michael Bach, you know, there's not that that kind of emotional attachment that you would have with, for example, Terry. And Belletti is, is interesting because I think if you, if you actually read up on what he's been doing outside of football he is very very business savvy he has like football schools and he he's always sort of very active in in being sort of doing uh, kind of ambassadorial work for Barcelona and he he's he seems to be like a very intelligent guy who can move sort of in the right circles and I think again from that respect you know a lot of people will will maybe not remember him but he was just a very good utility player at Chelsea who you know I think kind of earned sort of cult hero status just because of the sheer amount of effort he would put in but also the fact he scored I think just what four, maybe five goals for Chelsea and I think the closest one was from about 40 yards so you know he, he has this kind of this sort of slight connection in terms of that as well he's, he's you know obviously still very much connected to the club understands the Barcelona model but also I think as I said this the fact that he has these kind of football schools and he has this other stuff going on in football I think he's he's interesting for me in that perspective that he might be able to to play kind of the sort of political game that I think often often happens at Chelsea he could negotiate that quite well in terms of Balak I mean he would be my, my ideal candidate if Chelsea were going for um, someone who is yeah who's going to be sort of very well connected to the club I mean, apart from being a pundit, I think the only other thing Michael Ballack does is that he's a professional Chelsea fan. So, you know, it's not really a a, a huge step for him to to come back in the club. I think he's yeah generally very highly regarded amongst Chelsea fans. You know, his his football IQ is is, is immense. If you talk to any person who who's had the the privilege of, of chatting with him about football, if you see any of his punditry, um, you know, I think it's uh, it's very apparent that he very much understands the game. 
Um, obviously he played in the Premier League and I think also the fact that he played in a very very good Chelsea side you know he's part of that 2009-10 Chelsea side which may be one of the best ones that we've had he sort of understands what it takes to be a, a good Premier League player and and yeah sure while he doesn't have sort of the scouting qualifications of some other people I think from a general footballing perspective if, if you were going to put him in front of Abramovich and, and Granoskaya and the ownership group I think he has some gravitas in that he's obviously been a, not only an excellent player, he's been captain of Germany, he's captain Chelsea, but he's been such a prominent player at Chelsea that, that his opinion carries weight. And yeah, I mean, I think he would be able to say, okay, you know, someone from the scouting department presents all the analytical information, shows him all the video analysis on a certain player. And, you know, I, I would trust Balak to be able to make a decision on particularly whether someone would be able to play in the Premier League. So having him as kind of like a figurehead, um, particularly maybe while the club sort of um, are maybe potentially undecided on a, on a model of, of approach for what they want going forward but I think he, he adds a lot of uh, of sort of Chelsea-ness that I think is, is maybe more associated with a kind of the first 10 years of, of Roman rather than sort of the, the second part that we're in now that sort of steely kind of technical powerful approach to football which I think again may, may or not work in the future but I think definitely he's he has the, as I said the sort of the, the gravitas to, to be able to, to, to have those sorts of conversations and yeah, I mean, I've, I've read a lot of interviews with him, particularly historically. You know, he is uh, someone who really loves aggressive attacking football, loves the game to be played with power and pace. You know, I think from a philosophy standpoint, he would be very much in line with the direction I think the club wants to go in. You know, mentally strong, he's got great leadership skills. And I think generally just his general intelligence and the way that he would carry himself as a club representative, I think also goes a particularly long way. So, you know, even if we do bring in a, a kind of a more established external candidate, I still think Balak would make an incredible addition um, kind of within the sort of the boardroom or the kind of director level. If it is more of a working with a director of football, working with someone else, I think Balak gives you that sort of little bit of uh, assurance that, you know, there is definitely some, some high uh, high level high um, capacity football knowledge that, that's that's going into the decision making process which I think at the moment you know with all the will in the world I don't think it's very obvious to say that we have a huge amount of football uh, football experience on the board um, or kind of you know in, in a, a very obvious decision making role which I think is what we need um, a lot of this is about transparency and being more open and being more accountable and you know I, I don't think anyone really kind of ever fully understood what, what it was that that Mike and Emilolo did and didn't do and what kind of Sky did and didn't do and yeah this would be for me a, a very good step in the, in the direction of being slightly more open with the fan base but also I think it gives them time to almost uh, yeah be able to make decisions and say well you know we have got someone who, who understands football on the board he is helping in the, in the decision making process it does take a lot of pressure off of them as well so yeah I think that would be uh, Balak would be one of the very very uh, top I think in terms of candidates of, of uh, Chelsea nature if we were going to go down that route so, I mean, obviously we have a, a, a good amount of candidates here, internal and external, but I guess, um, Nick, you know, just kind of bringing you in uh, for, for some insight as well, like with all of these changes, because this is a pretty, pretty big change for a club like Chelsea, um, like how many years do you think you would kind of give it to settle? Like, is this something that you imagine would the club would be able to do in two, three years, or is this much longer of a project? Uh, so I am I am not an expert like Joe, so I will preface <laughs> everything I say uh, with that. But to me, I think the the one benefit that exists, um, you know, at, at the club is that they already have the academy in a really good spot. You know, like it, it's not it's not for me as if there would be a you know whole holistic change of philosophy in that regard at the club and if there is a 
desire, you know, for a sporting director to come in, figure out how to properly use the talent coming through the ranks, because we know that's been um, said in the papers and and uh, other sorts of mediums that Abramovich is is very interested in seeing his uh, his youth talent come through. Then to me, that that would be a really interesting piece of this. I mean, I think for the. I'm going to toss it back to to Joe here, but I think for the club to undergo a significant structural change, anytime you make a a change at any level, it just, it generally takes time for not only the, you know, C-suite level, you know, the the CEOs and, and CMOs, all these different parts of the organization to kind of understand how to implement it. But then it takes the, the staff below, which is something we haven't really you know talked about a ton, except for Joe's mention of of Balak maybe being an auxiliary part to somebody else's uh, backroom staff in that regard. It, it takes this, the lower the lower level staffers a while to understand the new philosophy to implement it properly. You know to maybe set up scouting networks that don't exist or um, you know rejigger the, the the scouting networks that we already have, things like that. So. Um, I, I really, I think it's a, a multi-year change, but I'm going to defer to, uh, defer to Joe, um, to, to see what he thinks. <laughs> well, I mean, interestingly, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of very keen on, on learning from other sports and I think probably one of the, the best examples of, of building a team and, and, and really implementing a philosophy is probably Bill Belichick. And I know that probably will offend some American Ugh. viewers. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if you listen to, to some of the way that he talks about implementing philosophies, and I think it does apply to a lot of sports is that he, he will say that typically three to four years is, is kind of the expected to, to implement something from scratch, which I think, I don't think we're quite at the scratch level. So maybe say two to three years, um, but to sort of bring it in, bring in the right personnel in terms of the playing squad in terms of the coaches you know bringing through kind of the the sort of younger players so I'm assuming from an American standpoint it's going to be integrating draft picks etc but for us it would be more likely the academy so yeah and, and, and that kind of time frame particularly I'd say two to three years does sit with with books that I've read around sort of general sporting strategy whether it's rugby whether it's uh, whether it's football whatever they do tend to sort of sit quite comfortably in that window so yeah I mean I imagine Chelsea's uh, you know kind of time frame would be quite aggressive if they do miss out on European football this season I can see that being potentially needing to be accelerated to, to come back into the Champions League the following season but you know I think it, it's probably I would say a minimum of, of two to three years to to really embed a, a significant cultural change you know having more of this uh, I said this kind of sporting director area uh, making more decisions to do with the football and, and having a manager that can can work sort of very coherently with that and and yeah I mean in terms of the, the playing style and, and, and sort of the, the, the direction of the club from a, a general kind of day-to-day perspective I think that that would take time but yeah I mean you need to make sure that you have all of the right pieces in place um, really before you get going I think yeah for me if, if we can get that director of football in place and that is a very significant puzzle piece that should enable them to at least um, figure out sort of the direction going forward so yeah I mean I would say probably two to three years Nick it's a it's a sporting director Joe um, yes. I want to I make sure that we're we're not confusing folks uh, on that regard i would also say this there are a couple of considerations here um going back to joe's point about you know bringing the the technical heart of the club back i think uh that will have a major impact on the 
you know, especially match going fans perception of where the club is going and the fans are a big piece of this. Right. I mean, not necessarily in uh, decision making terms, but they're uh, certainly uh, I would say any any C-suite worth their money are looking at sentiment analysis and uh, ticket sales and all of like the general uh, themes that you would use as a as a football club to determine if your uh target market, your clientele, the, the fans of your club are happy with the direction. If they're, if they're pissed off about something, that's a major, major, major piece of this. Uh, it's not something that's talked about a ton and because the fans don't have uh, a, a great amount of power in this regard, but certainly, you know, if, if things go South quickly and you're not selling out Sanford bridge, uh, as we're approaching a new stadium rebuild, uh, there's a lot of financial consideration there. Uh, that's huge. And then the second piece would be from me that anytime you redo a process uh, or, or redo a structure, there will always be residual uh, impact of the old structure in place until that's officially kind of cleared out and uh, and the new structure is, is holistically implemented. So, you know, let's just say that Chelsea are playing one style of football, you know, this this three back for a few years. And, and we're, we want to go transition to a four back. Well, we're still going to have players who might be flexible enough to play the four back and really excel in that territory. But we're going to need, you know, new center backs to come in who really specialize to make that the best that it can be. Right. So there will there's always a transition period. And I, I think your two to three years there, Joe, makes a lot of sense to me because we're, we're going to have to uh, see the philosophy, understand it and then really try and implement uh, both in the playing style and all the other aspects that you were talking about earlier. So there will just be kind of a, a betting in period that will see players come and go and all that kind of stuff as well. So it's it's going to be very, very interesting. Awesome. Well, we do, before we wrap up this this first part, essentially want to uh, get a couple of our Yappa questions in, uh, you know, while we've got Joe on the line. So the first... Brandon, do we want to credit, though, that Joe made a, a wonderful comparison to the technical prowess of Bill Belichick before we do we that? Do, we do not, actually. <laughs> okay. We, we want to skip over that as quickly as possible. All right. Just, just thought I would bring that up for the, <laughs> the wonderful Patriots fans who are also Chelsea fans, too. All right. Well, here we go with the uh, the first phone-in question. Hey, guys. It's Tim here. Huge fan of the pod. Uh, listener every single week, so I really uh, thank you guys for everything you guys do. Um, my question this week is just um, with Joe Tweets here. I feel like it's only right to ask, but who do you guys think is going to be the next player that comes through the youth system that is kind of um, a regular for more than two or three years, kind of like John Terry? Um, someone like maybe Tammy Abraham, um, Hudson Adoy, or maybe even someone like Mason Mount or uh, like an Ole Hain of sorts. I'm just kind of interested to hear your input. Um, thanks again for everything you guys do. Well, that seems like a reasonable enough question, Tweeds. Uh, you know, especially That's a good question. You know, <laughs> someone who follows the academy as closely as you have. Um, you know, I guess we'll, we'll open it up. What do you think uh, of Tim's question? Who will be the next one to get their break or at least their chance to make a breakthrough? Are we, are we sure Tim isn't Neil Bath, by the way? Just maybe asking for Tim's... Uh, <laughs> Tim wants Joe's perspective uh, here. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm assuming by the, by the guys that he's mentioned that he's, he's talking about guys that have been in the academy probably from, from 8, 9, 10 rather than sort of your 
maybe Andreas Christensen's have come in slightly later. So I think the, the one probably to keep an eye on, and I think this is this is probably with a view to, to changing system next season, potentially if a new manager comes in, is is probably Mason Mount. Um, I think his his development of a test, particularly physically and, and just the, the way he has kind of taken to adult football, I think probably is has been pretty exceptional. And, and you know, not to put too much on, on sort of the analytics side of things, but Ted Nutson of, of Mixed Nuts fame and, and Statsbomber fame has, has, you know, some very, very positive things to, you know, to say about him and from, an analy- and from an analytic standpoint for his age. You know, his sort of key passes and assists and his sort of general passing numbers are excellent. He's, he's scoring goals. He's being a sort of a creative hub for a, a very good for test team at the moment and I think when you again when you watch him play the major difference I've seen from, from him sort of as a maybe a sort of an under 16 17 18 at Chelsea is that this this kind of guy is now growing into a very very physically proficient athlete in terms of his build and, and the way that he can carry himself in in adult football and you know he was absolutely excellent against Ajax and he's been he's been fantastic in in a number of games this season so I wouldn't be surprised particularly if we maybe switch to something a bit closer to maybe a Four two three one. That he's he's a very natural number ten. Um, I think that that would be very very interesting. Um, I also would say probably. I think in terms of players sort of establishing themselves, maybe I think Tammy Abraham does have a very good shot at coming back next season and playing. Um, I think his his style is probably going to lend himself to being maybe a second or a or a third choice striker at Chelsea. But I think if he does get a chance, particularly with the sort of the, the potential style change that that does benefit him. The one thing that I would say, and, and I think with with some of the names that we've been linked to from a, from a managerial standpoint, I think there is a very very huge departure from what we've seen for the past five years particularly under under Mourinho and, and Conte where sort of the proficiency without the ball is, is one of the sort of the major kind of points about whether a player is, is given certain game time or not and I think potentially again if, you, if you're bringing in a manager who who really sort of prioritises ball possession and, and, and pace and being you know the, the kind of technical side of the game the ability to play with the ball that actually that this opens the door for so many more academy players who maybe you might have slightly sort of put in the background because they don't necessarily fit Conte's you know sort of a, a definition of what a particular player should be doing I'm looking particularly at someone like Loftus-Cheek who I imagine particularly under some of the managers that we're being linked to his ability to, to carry the ball through midfield his, his general touch and size and that I mean, it's a very, very tantalising prospect to a manager who who likes that kind of midfielder, who's technical, who's who's powerful, who can dribble, who can who can sort of play make in the final third. Someone like him, and then even even the fullbacks that we have coming through the academy, all of a sudden they look a lot more realistic in terms of being able to give, be given game time. Um, I think Ola Aina is and. Uh, and Fikio Tomori are both doing particularly well at Hull. I think now that, that Ollie sort of has adjusted to uh, adult football, he's playing particularly well as a right back. But even going straight from the academy, I think you have Juan Castillo, the left back, the Dutch kid, looks to me like an exceptionally good prospect. Uh, Reese James and Dujon Sterling as well. I look at them and I just think, you know, for a, for a new manager coming in, the guys we've been linked to, that, that these are exactly the profile of player that, that they would like to see. You know, guys who you would describe as athletes, but who are incredibly technical footballers as well. Guys who can play on the wing, who can play right midfield, who can play as a fullback, as a wingback, have kind of midfielder skills. 
So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's sort of not, not really a cop-out answer, but um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that going forward, there is a, a huge possibility that, that the academy actually sees more opportunities for players because of the way that they've been trained and the sort of style of football that they currently play. I mean, you only have to look at Jody Morris's under-18s or, or any of Joe Edwards' teams to see the sort of style of football that the guys play very forward thinking, very attacking, very technical, lots of pace, lots of just general sort of control of the game and how that would necessarily translate to the first team. So, yeah, but I think, yeah, I think Mason Mount is definitely one to keep an eye on. I think his 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 growth at Vitesse has been impressive. He may well go on loan again next season, but I think potentially, um, you know, if we start playing with a, either a 4-3 and have that kind of Lampard role that he could play in or it's more of a classic number 10 that I think he's got a very very good shot um, you know and I think also his mentality he has said that I want to be the next one to sort of break through so he's definitely one to keep an eye on Love that Nick and Dan anything else you guys want to throw into that uh, that overview of youth players coming through Oh man um, I, you know I, I would love to see you know the you know I I think this was also stated on the fan cast so I will I will give them credit for this but as we look at uh, potential you know areas that the team need to improve I, I think Joe hit it on the head there with uh, a midfielder that would be able to chip in on the goals you know I think that's the an area that we just don't have any cover for if you think about you know Fabregas is not a a goal scoring midfielder um, Drinkwater is not a goal scoring midfielder. Barkley could be a goal-scoring midfielder if he's healthy, but I'm kind of intrigued to see where that experiment goes. Uh, Ngolo Conte clearly only scores against Manchester United, so you know, we have him in the have him in the bucket there. But I, I do, I really do think someone who's willing to make that late run, get into the box, and and cause some havoc, take pressure off of the likes of Eden Hazard or, or whoever our striker is at the at the present time would be. Uh, it's just an area that we need, Dan, and I'd be intrigued to see who could fill that role. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of uh, Mount, who's uh, doing well for England on the, the youth level. He had a, yes. a brace uh, just recently as well. But uh, I think the one other kind of oddball one that you know has been playing well for uh, for. PSV would be uh, Van Ginkle might be another kind of outside of the 100%. box option yep. who, uh, you know, it does exactly what you're talking about. Nick is someone who can add goals from outside the box and can be a goal scoring threat, which um, when you look at how Manchester city's totals line up this year, um, you know, you have multiple players who are over 10 goals in the season. And, and for us, we have, you know, two who are over 10 and in the Premier League specifically. And uh, we, we need more than that if we're going to win in the coming seasons. Awesome. All right. Well, the last one we're going to do for this episode, uh, it's a little lighthearted, but you know what? It wanted Chelsea pitch owner share. So I guess if anything, you can just be upset. You didn't ask your question. So I think the big question that is least been weighing on my mind and i don't honestly know that i've ever heard you guys answer it or figure it out is um exactly what is it that Alvaro morata puts in his hair to keep it to stay like that i don't think any of us have figured it out or at least haven't heard you guys figure it out yet um i mean or is it just made of actual stone and it just sets upon on top of his head so that's my question uh, let me know if you guys got any answers, theories, or thoughts. Thanks. 
like I said, hard hitting questions here, big topics, <laughs> big picture, <laughs> and international break. I mean, you know, Nick is someone who takes their hair game quite seriously. Um, any guesses at all what he is doing to to keep that hair in place during a match? Yeah, I'm I'm gonna submit a theory, you know, and I know this is what Joe came here to talk about today, so I'm really excited <laughs> to. I'm really the excited to get application of, exa- of wax or pomade. <laughs> exactly. I want to see what formation uh, Joe's going to throw in there for his hair <laughs> follicles. Uh, I would I would guess Elmer's glue as a wild card candidate. I think uh, if you look at the sheen, uh, Dan, and I think the sheen is really important here. Uh, there's a certain gluey type of aspect to the sheen. So I'm going with Elmer's glue. Final answer. Okay, so that, that's a, a very interesting option there. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate uh, your, your thought on that. Uh, I don't necessarily know if that's the right answer, but glue. Okay, what, what about rubber cement? Would that have been an option uh, too? That's I mean, too that, hard that on the follicles, Dan. Too hard on the follicles. It's too hard on the follicles. Okay. Yeah. I, I really interesting. I mean, like, could it be like a cream? Could it be a wax? Um, yeah, I, I imagine it's to be something that's not like super water like soluble. So, I mean, obviously we've seen him in the rain and his hair looks almost exactly the same as it does in the rain as it does when he's playing normally, as it does in his Instagram photos, um, vacationing around the world. So it's hard to tell. Uh, Joe, do you have a a hypothesis you would like to (laughs) add in? Uh, I mean... I think it's, it's it's definitely not a matte product, so I'm, I'm more of a matte, matte kind of product when it comes to my hair. So, um, yeah, it's definitely something that's got high shine. I think a high shine kind of uh, fiber gel or something like that. But no, it's uh, I, I've I've never quite understood the. Uh, I mean, it, it seems to be quite a modern football thing, but, but the players that have immaculate hair sort of before the game, during the game, and after the game, <laughs> I never quite understood that there must be some kind of uh, sporting hair brand that people don't know about because. I know from my own experience when I used to play uh, rugby, um, I would I would definitely not have a uh, a hairstyle that lasted more than about one minute into a game. So, and surely there has to be some sort of uh, downside of gel or whatever it is that he has on his hair running into his eyes. But although I would say that we have seen him sort of doing his girlfriend's hair, so maybe he is in his spare time. His hobby is some kind of hairdressing <laughs> slash hairstyling opponent. Maybe maybe that's just sort of one of his uh, his skill sets that we actually don't know about. So. Yeah, um, potentially. I, I, he might just have a, a, a hairdressing qualification that, that, that was kind of his fullback from football. So, yeah, I'm, I think maybe he's uh, he might do a bit of blow drying, a bit of other stuff as well. So I think he's he's pretty set there, but we can all for Murata. Hair, hair drying badges or a thing. Um, yes, I definitely. Will, yeah. <laughs> I will. I will give Mike Flynn credit at Rainier Blues for, for sub, submitting his thoughts here. Uh, part of our team. So my theory is that the extreme weight of his hair product pulls him to the ground. He doesn't dive. He just has more weight on his shoulders than the rest of us. <laughs> uh, it's really a complicated uh, scheme to avoid, uh, avoid showing dandruff during the match. Yeah, we gotta we gotta get referees on this. You know, I think I think that's the key is just to understand <laughs> the burden. Um, 
Awesome. Well, all right. Well, again, thank you for submitting those questions. As always, um, you know, you can get in the fun as well. Just head to the website forward slash questions, and that's how you can do it. Um, but we're going to go ahead and wrap up this part one. Uh, but don't worry, we're going to be releasing part two right after this one. Uh, we're going to be talking about the manager role, um, obviously talking about Conte and maybe looking ahead to the future of possibilities as well. So make sure that you uh, tune into that and don't miss it. But until then, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high. If you don't want the conversation to stop, make sure to follow the London is Blue podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want to support the pod, you can leave a five-star review in iTunes or donate on Patreon.com. The London is Blue podcast. Presented by WorldSoccerShop.com.